Uh, we're in Joshua chapter 5 this morning. I'm going to read the text, and then Dr. Gary Cass is going to come and, and preach for us this morning. So Joshua chapter 5, I'll be reading out of the ESV uh, this morning. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gilbeoth Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that He would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom He raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Verse 8. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, help us to be humble this morning as we come under your word and, and ask that you would minister to us by your spirit. Open our blind eyes and our deaf ears and our hard hearts, Father. Help us to see who you are and what you've done for us this morning. I pray for, for Dr. Cass as he comes to minister, Lord, that you would anoint him and by your Spirit use him to magnify your name and edify the body of Christ. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Tom. Good morning. 
appreciate the opportunity that the elders have afforded me to be able to address you today, and uh, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground. So is it right if I speed preach? I'll just try to get through here as fast as we can. Uh, by the way, then you have to buy the tapes. No, that's the old days. I'm sorry. That's, that shows you how old I... We don't do tapes anymore, do we? <clears throat> today we're uh, in uh, Joshua 5, and... Uh, it's exciting. As we've been studying this book, we see it's the beginning in some respects of the realization of the promises of God coming to pass in Israel, even the entering of the promised land. And of course, as we know, as we're reading through this literature, this is given to us for our edification and our good, and we're going to see some, some things. People say that history repeats itself. We don't believe in that. That's the Eastern philosophy of history, of cyclical history. Uh, we don't believe history repeats itself, but history does rhyme. And we're going to see patterns. We're going to see things that are prefigured and, and typified in what's going on here that do redound to our lives as believers today. And so uh, even as they're crossing the Jordan into the promised land, don't you know, one day we're going to cross over Jordan into God's very presence for eternity. And we all have that to look forward to. And as we read this, we have to read it with Christological lenses. We have to see this as a revelation of who Christ is and what Christ is doing because Christ is the theme of all the Bible. And if you read anything in the Bible and you can't connect it to Christ, you've misunderstood it. And so our text here is reminding us of some important things. Now remember, the land is the fulfillment of the promise given to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that one day through them a righteous seed would come, who is even Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And in order for them to be uh, faithful to God in the bringing forth of Christ, because that's what Israel was all about, they needed a land. They needed a place. They needed to be able to become a body politic so that they could have the opportunity to procreate, to bring forth Jesus Christ. Now, this passage is in the midst of the context of some things that some people find very offensive. Because in order for God to give Israel a land, God had to displace a people. In fact, God tells Israel, when they cross the Jordan, they are to go into the uh, land of Canaan, and they are to utterly destroy the Canaanites. And what does that mean? I mean, utterly destroy, completely wipe them out. And this has been an offense to carnal, unbelieving minds for generations. So here's the question. Why would God declare a holy war, harem is the Hebrew, on these seven Canaanite nations? Well, the good news is God tells us. Deuteronomy chapter 9 tells us, not because of your, speaking of Israel, not because of Israel's righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So we see the land is part of the promise that was given to Abraham, and it's a gracious gift of God's grace. They did not deserve it. It's not because they were particularly righteous. But the iniquity of the Canaanites had become so odious, they'd become so corrupt and so terrible, that it was God's will to utterly destroy them. Some people are offended by that. 
but we don't, maybe we don't appreciate the depths of depravity that was Baal worship and Moloch worship. It was nothing less than absolute unfettered sexual perversion and child sacrifice. Now, think about that. Can it get worse? How deep can your depravity go that you can justify in the name of your religion defying all of the, the things we know in our heart are true about our own sexuality and to be able to murder our own children in the name of our religion. Um, they deserved to go. In order for God to fulfill his purposes in bringing forth Christ the Messiah and to, to vindicate his own character as a just God, the Canaanites had to go, and all of God's people said, Amen. We should say Amen. God's ways are true and just. The land was polluted, and God said they're going. By the way, later on, Israel would pollute the land too, wouldn't they? And God would vomit them out of the land. So it's not as if God's playing favorites. He brought in the Assyrians and the Babylonians to bring judgment upon Israel because they had become like the Canaanites. But that's another sermon altogether. But for these purposes, I want us to realize holy war is absolutely unique in history and is not repeatable. This is important in our day. Why is this important? Because there's a whole religion out there you may have heard of called Islam. Islam is on a holy war. And do you know who's in their crosshairs? All of you. They believe it's God's will for you to either convert to Islam or they, they have the right to kill you. Now, holy war, there is no legitimate holy war. Holy war was only the one-time incident there when God was possessing Canaan for his people. Now, the gospel goes forth. We don't use a sword. We use the sword of the Spirit. We don't use coercion. We use persuasion. And we preach the gospel, and God, by His Spirit, draws people to Himself. So there are no more legitimate holy wars. There are just wars and unjust wars. That's another topic altogether. But as far as killing people in the name of God to advance religion, if you think that that's something God wants, uh, you've, you've misunderstood. Now, one last thing. There will be a holy warrior who will return on a white horse. Have you ever read about that in the book of Revelation? Jesus will come with ten thousands of his saints, and he will mete out his justice in the earth, but that's his business in the future. In the meantime, our business is preaching the gospel and declaring his grace. So as we look at the book of Joshua... As we study it, it basically anticipates Christ's ultimate victory and in many ways prefigures it. So we're going to see types and shadows of, of the gospel and of the kingdom of God. But as you read about Israelites uh, and their victories, uh, today we want to not take away from the text. It's sweet. God's doing something wonderful. He, he's fulfilling his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's not complete not perfect. There's something lacking. In fact, we'll even see today weaknesses and, and character flaws, even in Joshua, who was called by God. And why are these stories here? These stories are here to encourage us, but to also make us long for someone greater, someone who did the will of God perfectly, 
someone who saves his people perfectly, someone who fulfilled his mission perfectly. This is to drive us to our Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. That's what our heart longs for, and that's what we need. He is the only faithful one who can rescue us from our enemies, even sin and death and hell and the grave. So Jesus leads us in his triumphal perception, even into God's rest and into God's perfect peace. I hope you see that today as we study. So let's use this text then to look at how we are as Christians today to engage our spiritual battles. We don't fight flesh and blood enemies anymore. We don't fight with the sword, but we do have adversaries. There's spiritual adversaries, principalities and powers. There's things that, there's a warfare that we are engaged in, and there's principles here for us to look at. But I've entitled this message, Consecration for Mission. Consecration for Mission. We're all on mission for God. We've all been given the great commission to go and preach the gospel to all people. So we, we have a mission. But just like we're going to see in our text today, we need to be in the right fight at the right time for the right reason. Sometimes we go astray. So let's look at our text this morning. Verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for all the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Imagine putting yourself in that place. You're in a land and now you've heard the enemies are coming over into your territory. What that might have felt like for you. The kings of the Amorites, the kings of the Canaanites heard this ominous message, but it was not just an ominous message, it was a familiar message. Why? Apparently they had been watching Fox News 40 years earlier and the news alert came through. You know, they always have breaking alerts. What's the breaking alert? Forty years earlier, this nobody, nomad named Moses had confronted the most powerful man in the earth, the Pharaoh, the, the leader of the greatest superpower on earth, and demanded that Pharaoh let his people go, and Pharaoh did. And so, no doubt, that had shaken the whole Middle East. Everybody knew the story. God had sent ten plagues on Egypt and utterly left Egypt in ruins. In fact, the Egyptians were so anxious to see the Israelites go, they gave them their gold and silver and said, get out of here. But the Israelites plundered them. Some 600,000 Israelite men and their families were led by Moses into the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That's pretty dramatic stuff. But God wasn't finished. In order to make his power and glory known, we read in, in Romans, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh's 
saw that Israel was wandering in the wilderness. He thought they were lost. He thought they were vulnerable. So he musters up his army and his chariots. And God, by his spirit, leads Israel right down to the, to the edge of the Red Sea. And they were hemmed in, no place to go. And here comes Pharaoh and all of his army. And what do we see? We see at a place of what should have been certain doom, God's grace breaks through. We've talked about that. The waters parted. Israel went through the Red Sea on dry land. Does that sound familiar? And these waters of death that should have been Israel's doom became the place of grace, and they were baptized, the Bible says, into Moses. Sign of the grace of God. And yet these same waters that were grace to God's people, oh, thank you, also became the waters of doom to the Egyptians, even Pharaoh. And what do we read in, we read in, in Exodus? That the bodies of the Egyptians were washing up on the Red Sea, and Miriam busted out her tambourine and praised the Lord all up and down the shore for praising God for that great deliverance. So these images then are... Are real. These are, this is known in that area. And now here you are, the Amorites and the Canaanites in the land, and you hear about the Israelites coming through. And just like at the Red Sea, they came across the Jordan at flood time on dry land. Certainly, they began to panic. They realized the God of Israel was on the march, and the Bible says their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them. So now's the perfect time to attack, right? Remember uh, back uh, in the 6th century before Christ? I'm sure you remember back then. Um, there was a Chinese philosopher uh, who uh, was, wrote what is arguably the very best book ever written on tactics, war, war tactics, Sung Tzu. Notice what he says. Supreme excellence consists of breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. If the mind is willing, the flesh could go on and on without many things. Victorious warriors win first <clears throat> and then go to war, while defeated warriors go to war first, then seek to win. So God had already destroyed his enemies in their own mind. Their hearts melted. There was no spirit in them and so, obviously, now was the time to attack, right? We have the psychological advantage. All they had to do was march in and take over because God had put terror in the minds of their enemies. And God says, wrong? No, we're not doing it that way. How I many of you know God's ways are not our ways? God's not going to share his glory with you. Is that okay? God's going to do it his way on his terms the way he wants to. So we need to remember that in our spiritual battles, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They have divine power. God's not nervous. God's not anxious. He didn't feel like he had to exploit the situation. And he's not going to share his glory with mere men. God wins his battles in very profound ways in his own terms, very ironic terms many times, many surprising ways, even he wins in weakness. He wins in suffering. 
He wins on a Roman cross. We didn't see that coming, but that's the way of our God. God had promised Israel the land. Let me ask you, if God gives a promise, who's going to resist His will? Right? God promised them the land. The conquest was going to happen. And it even pointed to a greater conquest, even the conquest and triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ and of His kingdom. As as Revelation said, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, ruling the nations, the Bible tells us. Is that the Christ we serve? That's what was being prefigured here. So the victory is not at risk. The outcome of the warfare is not uncertain. Jesus has won. His kingdom is winning. And he will reign until he makes all his enemies his footstool. So Israel had a more pressing need then than than victory militarily. Israel had a more pressing spiritual need. So there's three things I want us to look at today, spiritually, that you need, that I need, we all need, if we're going to be on mission for God, and if we're going to fulfill what God has for us to do. Notice the first thing that God does. Instead of pressing into war, he says, stop, time out. And then we read in verse 9, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So before they could go into battle, they needed to have a spiritual revival. And that that spiritual revival needed to be uh, manifested by a very formal act of covenant renewal. Now was not the time to fight. They needed to affirm their God and their relationship with Him. They needed to go to the covenant. And God has always, with His people, given us signs and seals of the covenant that He gives us. So that tangibly and visibly we can know that we're in relationship with him. And in the Old Testament, of course, it was circumcision. And so for 40 years, they'd been wandering in the wilderness, frankly, being discipled by a bunch of unbelievers. Remember, they were in the wilderness because they didn't believe. And now it's time to go into the promised land. And not only have they been discipled by unbelievers in a certain respect, They had 400 years of Egyptian worldview they had to overcome. Imagine that. If, if, uh, you know, when we read the Bible, sometimes we lose a sense of the time. They were in in Egypt over 400 years. And what do you learn when you're second-class citizens in another culture? You get enculturated. They thought like Egyptians. And so God needed to break through in their life. And the way he did that was by the sign of the covenant. They were no longer mere Egyptian slaves. And so what does God do? He wounds them. He wounds them profoundly so that he might heal them. And then he says, Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. That old nature was to be cut off and subdued, that slavish Egyptian mindset forsaken, the shame and degradation of generations of slavery was to be left behind them. They were to live in the liberty of the sons of God, the Lord's freed men. So Yahweh's great grace now is what's to define them. 
not their pagan past. So before they went on mission, they needed to remember who they were. They were the offspring of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the covenant of grace. And that grace needed to be passed on to the next generation. So what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? You need to remember your baptism and all that it signifies for you as Christ's person. The Christian sign of circumcision is our baptism. Look at Colossians 2. In Him, Christ, you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you are also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. The formal expression of the covenant, then, is our baptism, whereby we outwardly proclaim that we have been baptized by the Spirit into Christ. It has to have a spiritual reality. The stone that sealed Christ's tomb was rolled away. And and even as at Gilgal, God rolled away the reproach of Egyptian slavery. So Christ, at your baptism, rolled away your old identity, everything you did in the past, no matter how bad, all of that was gone. Your old nature has been replaced. And now Christ defines you. He is your life. He is your righteousness. He is your sanctification. And you're no longer to think like a bunch of Egyptians or a bunch of Canaanites. We're to have transformed lives. And that's what happens. By God's grace, He transforms us and is transforming us by His grace day by day. That's why I love this passage. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he gives you a whole list of that, of unrighteous things. And then he, but he ends this way, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God changed you at your baptism. You know what He did. You may not know this. He drafted you. You were drafted into God's army, His spiritual army. How many of you know God didn't ask for permission to draft you? He drafted you. And when he brings you in, he brings you in and makes you his soldier. And how many of you know there's a difference between civilian life and enlisted life? There's a different code of conduct for civilian life than there is for enlisted life. And God enlisted you into his army. And not just enlisted you into his army. He transformed you into his children. And we have to remember that. That should never get old to us. And we need to touch, before we can go on mission for God, we've got to let God's grace define who we are at our core. The second thing we have to do is we have to affirm our covenant relationships. Look at what happens here in verse 10. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. God had commanded that they remember him annually in the Feast of Passover. And we know uh, what the Passover represented. That was number 10 on the plagues 
that God had poured out on, on Egypt, the one that, that destroyed Egypt and all of its firstborn. And the only way to be rescued from the angel of death was to be part of a household. You had to go into your house and household, and you had to sacrifice a lamb, and you had to take the blood of the lamb and apply it over the doorposts and the, and the lentils, the mantles of the house. And when the angel of death saw the blood, the angel of death passed over. Well, of course, that was a picture of the gospel. Of course, everybody now looking back knows it speaks of Christ. But notice how God, it's important that we remember the individual act of grace that touched our lives. But that's not all that God does. God puts us in a household, even a household of faith. And here God is confirming again the need for us to identify not as Lone Ranger Christians, but as part of a larger community of faith. And the way that that's done is by Passover, by a covenant meal. If you will, the covenant meal is a tangible, tasteable sermon. The unleavened bread that they ate. Simplifying what? A sinless life. The bitter herbs. I don't know that they understood anticipating the sufferings of Christ. And of course, the lamb. Who is Christ? The Passover lamb. There was a sermon in the supper. There's a sermon in this supper. When we come to taste the bread, when we come to drink the cup, it's the tangible, tasteable revelation of God's grace to us, the costly grace, the broken body, the shed blood of our Savior. And God calls us to remember the covenant and to do it together in the context of household, in the context of the community of faith. I love this idea. There was one lamb for one house, right? And so I'm believing Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, what? And your household. One lamb for one household. The blood of the lamb applied to the family. This is the principal means by which God transmits the covenant of grace. It's most often transmitted through family. And we need to continue to pray and to believe that God will save our family members. So, as we come today, we're safe in the household of faith because we're gathered under the blood of Jesus. And by the way, this supper that we're going to taste in just a few minutes is what? It's the foretaste. It's the foretaste of that great and glorious day when we'll be in the presence of God forever at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So by faith, we look backwards at Christ as the sacrifice, but it is also by faith we look forward to that day when we will commune forever and ever with our God at his table. So consecration for mission means remembering our baptism and how God's grace has touched us individually. But we need to remember how the covenant of grace has connected us to his people. We are in union with Christ and his people. And we never should forget that. And then finally, 
we need to remember for whom we are at, with, at war for. <laughs> the very bad language there. Bad grammar. Remember for whom we fight. Verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and beheld a man standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the face, the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So can you, let's use our sanctified imaginations. Can you see Joshua? You know, they, they come into the promised land, and what's in front of them? Well, their first military objective is Jericho. He's in charge. So I, can, I know if I was there, I'd be looking at Jericho. I'd be studying Jericho. I'd be trying to figure out the tactics and the strategies that I'm going to use. I'm, God made me the leader, right? Joshua was, was called by God to lead his people in. So I'm sure he was there. He was focused. He was ready to go up against Jericho. You say, well, that's great. Isn't that what he should have been doing? I don't know. Apparently not. I can imagine uh, Joshua even uh, thinking this. Why didn't we go after him right when we came in? We had the advantage, Lord. We could have taken him just like that. They were scared. We could have marched right through. We always want to help the Lord out. Anybody want to do that? And then suddenly, Joshua is confronted by a man with a drawn sword. How many of you know that's not a friendly gesture? You see somebody with a drawn sword, what do you think? They're going, they're, they want to kill me, right? It's a murderous gesture. And of course, we know who this is, right? We know the back of it. Joshua's obviously not getting it. It's Jesus. Jesus shows up with his sword drawn to confront Joshua. Now, does that sound familiar? If you went back to Exodus chapter 4... God did the same thing to Moses. Remember? Because Moses did not sanctify his son through circumcision. God confronted Moses. Interesting. Sometimes I wonder if we need to be confronted from time to time to remember who God really is. And that seems to be what's going on right here. Because God's not some, I don't know how you imagine God, but he's not some docile old man up in, in the sky that we can manipulate, that we have wrapped around our little finger as if God is going to do our bidding. The Bible says he is an all-consuming fire, and one of the names of God is he is a man of war. We forget sometimes who we're in relationship with. And I believe that's what's happening here. Which Josh was so focused on mission, so focused on, on doing what God had called him to do, and yet there was something wrong. 
He was so spiritually blind that when Jesus shows up in front of him, he doesn't even recognize him. So Jesus is going to have nothing of this. So Jesus speaks. I am. Uh-oh. Does that sound familiar? I am. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Bang. Okay, Joshua finally got it. And what did Joshua do? It says, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. Now remember, Joshua was legitimately called to be the successor of Moses to bring God's people into the promised land. But he needed to be confronted. He needed to be confronted by a greater Joshua. Even our Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we see here now? We see the lesser Joshua laid out on the ground like a dead man. Vulnerable. Before a guy with a sword drawn. An act of utter submission and, and surrender to his God. These kinds of traumatic and overwhelming confrontations is exactly what we need. Because sometimes in, we, we don't realize who we're dealing with when we're dealing with God. Our theology is needing to be adjusted. Christ, in a sense, figuratively had to slay Joshua in order for Joshua to be of any good to him. And that's why Paul says, you are nothing more and we should aspire to be nothing more than what? Living sacrifices. Dead to ourselves and alive to God. And this is so important because I think sometimes in our Christian life, we think it's about us. We get our egos way too invested in this thing. See, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus, and he sends us in his name. But sometimes we lose sight of that. So what do we do? We take off our sandals. We, we come to that place of of humility. And notice the command, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. We stand at the foot of the cross and we gaze upon great mercy personified. And just like Moses, again, was confronted by God and he had to have that transforming confrontation where he ended up taking off his sandals in the presence of God in the burning bush. We need to be broken. We need to be humbled. We need reverent, barefooted worship. Because that's the prerequisite for mission. Before we shot our feet with the preparation of the gospel, which we're commanded to do, we need to shed our sandals in holy worship. So life is not about getting God to get on our mission and get on our plan and get on our five-year plan. It's about us being busy with the Father's business. And Joshua had gotten so focused on his duty, he didn't realize God, not the mission, is what has to be constantly before us. Sometimes we take this so personally 
and we think it's our mission. And by the way, we think the Canaanites are our adversaries. They're not. They're his adversaries, not our adversaries. He was doing his work in bringing judgment. So God's grace was about saving Israel, and God's justice was about judging the Canaanites. So it's not me versus them. Sometimes we look at the world and we get on mission, it's us against the world. No, it's the world against God. They're not my enemies. They're God's enemies. They're the ones shaking their fist in the face of God and resisting the work of the Spirit. So we're to love our enemies, aren't we? And how do we love our enemies? By indiscriminately preaching the gospel to everybody. Because what does God do through the gospel? He takes Canaanites and turns them into Israelites. Yeah. Remember, he takes prostitute Canaanites, like Rahab, and turns them in to his people. There are elect Canaanites. And oh, by the way, you were a Canaanite. So don't get all up on your high horse thinking, oh yeah, those dirty, rotten Canaanites, except by the grace of God, that's you, that's me. Had you met me at age 19, you would have believed I was a confirmed Canaanite. There was no hope for him. I was lost, desperately lost. By age 20, I was in church serving Jesus and following him. We don't know who God is going to touch. So we preach the gospel indiscriminately. Friend, foe, doesn't matter. Whether they're strident anti-Christians or just, you know, quiet anti-Christians. They're anti-God. They're, they're at war with God. That's their struggle. Our mission is just to present the gospel. And God uses the means of our bold proclamation as long as it's coming from a place of humility, knowing that we were no less lost than the worst Canaanite. And yet God, by His grace, has touched our lives and changed us. So we're on mission. And I hope you feel the, the pressure, the call, the urgency of mission in your life. But mission has to be preceded by these three things. Remember your baptism. Mission must always be motivated out of a sense of the overwhelming grace of God and, and count yourself dead to this world. Secondly, we need to feast at his table. And we need to feast at his table with his people. That's why we do not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. We need this. We need to come in here and, and fellowship with God's people for mutual edification and encouragement to sit under the authority of the Word of God so God can calibrate our spiritual compass and keep us on track. Because I don't know about you, in the course of a week, I can get lost. Coming back to church is a good thing to do. Get me back where I need to be. And then lastly, we need to worship Him in reverence and awe. And we do that by letting God's most costly grace humble our hearts and cause us to show forth His praise. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this story. It's not a story. For these facts that You revealed to us in Your Word of how You dealt with Your people in the past. And thank You for the mission that You've given us as your people through the gospel. 
And Lord, we confess we are not worthy or able of ourselves to do your will. But Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit and would you fill this place with a sense of who you are? And Lord, as I've preached, as I've shared, I pray that the Holy Spirit has been stirring in our hearts. And Lord, if there's anything in us that needs to be addressed or are repented of, Lord, help us. Forgive us of our cowardice. Forgive us of our selfishness. Forgive us of our, our wanderings away from you and looking to this world. Help us to put to death the flesh and Lord, we don't want to think like the Canaanites. We're no longer Egyptians in our minds. We are the free men and women of God. Let us live in that reality. And as we come to your table, let us taste and see that the Lord is good and that he is kind and that he is merciful. So Lord, receive our worship and, and hear our prayers as they're offered through Christ. Amen.